Let the words of my heart and the meditations of my mouth be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my God, and my Redeemer. Amen. I'll probably say this a couple times throughout this sermon, but I just want you to remember the, the thing that I'm that the Lord has kind of called me to talk about today and really stay focused on is that uh, this word vocation that we use, that we throw around, uh, has lost a lot of its meaning. And that uh, I hope that you begin to connect vocation to what you saw and, and heard in the gospel uh, that, and what you hear, heard of the story of Abraham, that vocation is about being called. It's about being summoned by God. It's not necessarily just about a job or the thing that we do. It is about God summoning us to follow him, to come and see and to do whatever we do, thought, word, or deed for the kingdom. Father Eris has asked me to speak a little bit about receiving vocational ministry and what we do. Uh, We are essentially an organization that is helping people to get their lives back together uh, and to uh, begin to find a way forward often in a life that's been uh, devastated through, by things like uh, addiction or criminal uh, activity, incarceration, um, or just mismanagement of a life or sometimes circumstances beyond their control that they just uh, were not able to negotiate well. And so we're helping them to get their lives back together. And it's on this weekend where millions of Americans are celebrating Labor Day a time to honor uh, men and women, the important contributions they make to our society. We honor those today who made our workplace safer and more equitable. We also honor those who, through an honest day's work, make our communities better places to live. Like that uh, famous phrase in uh, Ecclesiasticus, uh, some of them are famous and some of them are not. But we've all contributed and we honor them all today. First Labor Day was celebrated in 1882 in New York City. States gradually adopted this as a holiday. In 1894, uh, President Grover Cleveland signed it a law, making the first Monday of September a national holiday. In 1909, one of the labor unions in New York City uh, at their convention designated the Sunday before Labor Day, called it Labor Sunday, to be dedicated uh, in part to the spiritual aspects of labor. And this weekend just happens to be the 125th anniversary of Labor Day. Billy Graham has astutely said, Labor Day should be a time when we ask God to help us see our work from God's point of view. I'll say that again. Labor Day should be a time when we ask God to help us see our work from God's point of view. For being honest, uh, work isn't always very exciting. We focus on its problems or spend our time wishing we were doing something else, we probably end up resentful, angry, or bored. But when we begin to see work from God's point of view, our attitude can begin to make a shift. We begin to realize that work is one of God's gifts to us. And because of this, it has dignity and significance. I got a gift right before I started Racine Vocational Ministry. Uh, My mentor gave me this, this piece. I don't know if we can pass it around. If you can see it, it's a, uh, a carving of Jesus with a T-square. We forget that Jesus spent most of his life as a carpenter. And it was the last few years of his life that he was in full-time ministry. 
sounds kind of silly. Think of Jesus that way. He was probably always in full-time ministry. And we'll talk about that as well. I think we are all in full-time ministry. We just don't quite frame it that way. So this, I see this every day, and it always has an impact on me. It reminds me of my mentor, and it reminds me that Jesus had a trade, and he worked, and it was honorable. The Apostle Paul was also a tent maker. And Scripture teaches, if we read it properly, from the very beginning, even before sin entered the world, that the Lord God took man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work and to care for it. Work is part of the garden and part of uh, God's call to us. It's not just part of the fall. The context, as I said earlier, of my comments today are that God calls us, not so much asking God to bless what we have chosen to do, but to first seek to hear God's call to us. What I want you to know is that listening to God is a natural thing. And he is calling us in general and in specific ways every day. I pray that you will all hear that call for you, that personal call. I want you to feel encouraged to hear God's word and to pray that you will want to pursue his word for you. The opening prayer of the colic today points out some real key theological points about work. One is that work links our lives together with each other, that all we do affects for good or ill the lives of those around us, that we should pray for God to guide us in the work that we do, that we should understand that what we do is not for ourselves alone, but for the common good. And also, it calls us at the end of the collect to be concerned for those who are out of work. This collect could truly be the daily prayer for Racine Kenosha Vocational Ministry. In 2000, I heard that call and started the business. At RVM, we help people find their calling in life how many of you would have guessed, given our agency title, that we're actually about God's call? Most people think it's about getting a job. You would not be the first nor the last to get that confused. This is partly due to the reason that the word vocation has been stripped of its uh, fullness in our modern culture. Like many words, it's been reduced to only a part of its meaning. The Latin root vocare literally means to call or to summon. The true meaning of vocation is played out in our readings today. Abraham and the apostles were called by God. Called where, you might ask? Quite simply, to the place where God is leading. Abraham was called to a new land, and the apostles were called to a new relationship, not to a job. We still use this word in, in modern uses, but often it's tied to uh, holy orders, being a minister or a priest. To reinforce what we've been learning in our engagement classes, like Abraham and the apostles, we are to listen for God's word to us. We're to, to discern what that word is and then act on it. This is the lesson of our readings today, and it's one of the practical applications for our lives. A friend of mine gave me a book a long time ago. It was written in 1957, actually the year before I was born. Gustav Wingren wrote this book entitled Luther on Vocation. And he states that the popular view of Martin Luther's teaching about Christian vocation is that it has to do with one's occupation or one's job. And he says that is, when one is called to follow Christ, one's occupation becomes the calling in which one serves God. He says this is not wrong, but it's kind of one-sided and incomplete. 
It may reflect the general notion of vocation, which has permeated much of our Western culture, so that an occupation is referred to as one's vocation or calling, usually with almost no reference to actually being called by God or having any meaning beyond earning a living. Thinking of vocation as an occupation, unfortunately, allows us to restrict our understanding to what we get out of it, a check, some insurance, or even the glamour, glamour of the position. The real question for us is, what does it mean that God has called you here to this place? And what is your responsibility to others? One author said, seeing vocation as God moments in history will frame and enlarge the idea of vocation almost beyond our strength. Why you think about that for a minute? A lot of our lives have to do with how we frame them and how we think about them. When we see what we do as a moment in history that God is calling us to bring about his kingdom, it enlarges our vision for what we're called to do almost beyond our strength. And that is the point. It is beyond our strength. Rather than minimizing the significance of our lives so we can cope with this huge idea, it's important that we fully grasp the gravity of our impact on those around us. Leaning on God to make up for our shortcomings. Minimizing is almost what most of us do. Daily, most of us fail to see that we are called to build God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. We do not see our work or our actions as God sees them. We get stuck in the smallness of our own view. Famous poem by Marianne Williamson, who's become more famous now that she's running for president. Very curious, <laughs> indeed. But I love this poem that she wrote, and it's been quoted very often. Our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It's not our light. It's not our light that most frightens us. Or, I'm sorry. It is our light, not our darkness, that frightens us most. We ask ourselves, who am I to be brilliant, gorgeous, talented, or fabulous? Actually, who are you not to be? You are a child of God. Your playing small does not serve the world. There's nothing enlightened about shrinking so that other people will not feel insecure around you. We are all meant to shine, as children do. We were born to make manifest the glory of God that is within us. Responding appropriately to our call will drive us back to God who alone has the power and insight to help us see our way through to his will in the complexities of our lives in him. It is his light that will shine through us. At Racine Vocational Ministry, we try to help a person understand what it is they burn or yearn to do. Most of the people that come to see us have sold their dreams down the road a long time ago. They're just trying to cope. How can I get by? Help me survive, and I'll get out of your hair, and, you can leave, and I can get on with my life. At RVM, we believe that that which is buried deep within them is closest to what God has called them to be. We try to help them understand that God has called and equipped them to engage their world wherever they are. This can make work satisfying and relevant to our walk with God, but can also make it extremely challenging, because sometimes the call is not the path of least resistance. And many of us have experienced that in, in, our, in our work. But we are called sometimes to take a principled stance against corruption, indifference, or even a pattern of systematic inequities. Another aspect of vocation, it's not so much about what I do, but about where God has placed me and what God does through me. I'll say that again. Vocation is not so much about what I do. 
It's about where God has placed me and what God does through me. Vocation is a theology of the Christian life. God calls us to live out our faith in the world in the ordinary seeming realms of the family, the workplace, and the culture. The purpose of every vocation is to love and serve our neighbors whom God brings us in our everyday lives. And the author, Wingren, shows us that vocation is also about God's presence in the world, which he cares for through ordinary people. It's very easy to look out in the world and see uh, saints that we've read about through, through history and people who have made magnificent impacts on the world in very large places, but much of God's work is done in the ordinary, in the things that we do every day. Seeking to understand and appreciate that is, is what helps to build healthy community and a healthy understanding of vocation in ourselves and in others is really important. It can be the successful, uh, the key success to marriages and parenting, uh, and it can be the foundation for a context of how we interact with the culture by being present in the world but not of the world. Understanding vocation properly can become a godly framework for living out spiritual significance of listening to God and, and, and the impact of that on the realm of the ordinary, where, quite frankly, we live most of our lives. I've heard very often people connect the, uh, work to the fall, and this is a problem. Work is a gift. As I said earlier, in Genesis, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to tend and to keep it. Keeping and tending is connected to work and connected to vocation and also connected to being in that place where we are with God, God uniquely designed us each with talents that we are responsible to cultivate and develop. Work is a part of the holiness of the created order, and it was so from the very beginning. Author Tim Keller says in his book, Every Good Endeavor, the book of Genesis leaves us with a striking truth that work is part of paradise. It's not always easy to wrap my brain around every day. For some of us, that may be a huge leap to understand that our jobs are part of our call. But understanding this helps to guard us from the deep cynicism of the culture around us. I had a minister friend who uh, I worked with in the same building. When I would ask him, hey, Kevin, how's it going? He would just go, another day in paradise, cynical as could be, and just keep walking. He never turned back and, and, and looked at him. He'd just say, Live, uh, another day in paradise. Sometimes it's hard to wrap our brains around work as part of God's call to us. And it can be easier to see it in people called to work in the church, but not, in the secular, not as easy in secular lives. However, when we reduce the notion of calling or vocation to just work in the church, we sometimes can fail to help people to understand that we all need to be equipped to carry our Christian faith into the world, to be a part of building God's kingdom here on earth. And this is true of all work, not just ministry. Unless, of course, you understand that everything we do as Christians is an expression of ministry, an expression of how God is in the world and working in the world. Part again, what I hope you'll hear today is that vocation is the living out of God's call to us wherever we are and whoever we're serving. Father Eric and Father Steve have a unique calling. It's very particular, but so do you. It's just often that we don't think about it that way. We don't frame it that way. Dick Lucas, a lesser-known colleague of John Stott and J.I. Packer, says, in the long term, I think being a preacher, a missionary, or leading a Bible study group in many ways is easier to connect with the work of God. There's a certain spiritual glamour in doing it. 
What we should be doing each day is to discern, uh, it, it should, it's easier to discern uh, what's black and white. It's not so gray like our lives are. It is often hard to get Christians to see that God is willing not just to use men in ministry, but in law, in medicine, in business, and in the arts. This is one of the shortfalls of today. So vocation is a tricky but critical notion. Rightly understood, it sets us free in Christ to give ourselves to the service of our neighbor and the glory of God. Wrongly understood, it can enslave us to a boss, which we then end up conceding has the authority to press us to produce cleaner floors or a better product. And God may indeed like craftsmanship, but Christian vocation is not ultimately about production, though production could be a result. And it's not really about personal satisfaction, although our jobs can satisfy us. It is about our neighbor. It's about giving ourselves to others in love and service in the freedom of the gospel as a slave to Christ. God will surely welcome our efforts, however skilled or hesitant they may be. So it's helpful to understand, first, the Christian faith gives us a moral compass. Second, our faith gives us a spiritual power, an inner point of reference that keeps us from being overthrown by success, failure, or boredom. That's a really key point to me. Keeping focused on what God is doing in us and through us can save us from being overthrown by success, failure, or boredom. Third, the Christian faith gives us a new conception of work as a means by which God loves and cares for the world through us. Even if you're making widgets. I worked in a factory for about uh, 22 years, uh, and it took me a while to figure out that even at my assembly job or when I was working in the foundry, what I was doing was making products that were making our community cleaner. I, I made garbage disposals. It doesn't seem very holy or much of a calling, but I realized that this was one of just many things that people did to make our community better, and I started to find my way in that. And so uh, the Christian faith gives us a new world view that shapes the character of our work, and I can say this confidently, all work faithfully done that serves the common good pleases God. If we are not a minister or engaged in church work, the other part is we need to think through how our faith will distinctly shape our work. It's not imminently obvious. I would love to hear Father Steve talk about this. Now, in a secular job, working very hard, flying all over the country, uh, and how that work is gospel for him as well. I'd love to hear about what ways it's different, one ways it's the same as, as, as being right here on a Sunday morning. We must all work that out with our own God in our own prayer corner. And I encourage you each to spend some time allowing God to speak to you about how what you do is so important to our community. Seeking to serve God in life and work will connect you to a moral compass in a corrupt world. However, it will be challenging to hold on to your belief when things get tough, to be in God's presence in the midst of the world, to be truthful even when it's hard, to stay with that truth even when it becomes more difficult, and to stay in Christ when the pressure is on. This kind of being is not necessarily about teaching Bible studies or doing prayer groups in a secular environment, although it could be. It is more specifically about being in a relationship to God and staying in a relationship to God in everything that we do so that we are ambassadors for our own excellence and our desire to do what God is calling us to do in the places that we find ourselves. So it's not about being employee of the month enough times to get a promotion, but it's about listening to God in all things. 
I can tell you that this is really easy when things are going well. Things are not going well. It's not so easy. I'd like to introduce a friend of mine, uh, Andal Williams, and while he's coming up here to grab a microphone, uh, I'll say a little bit about him. I met Andal, if I have my dates right, in about 2003, and he had come to Racine Vocational Ministry after his, uh, go ahead, cross behind, after his uh, second stint, is that correct, in prison? In prison, yeah. <laughs> and Andal uh, uh, was one of those wonderful people you get a chance to work with that by the time he came to me, he had already begun to make his paradigm shift. I could see that when he sat in front of me, this is not a typical person. He had already begun to say, how I, I need to do something different. Can you talk about like, your first couple of meetings at RVM? What were you expecting and what, you know, I mean, you didn't really know much about us. I don't know if I knew much about us in 2003. <laughs> I was just figuring it out. Right. Oh, uh, well, first of all, I hated it. No, I'm just playing. <laughs> uh, uh, it was, I just wanted a job, you know. Um, I had just finished doing five years in prison and I didn't have any sense of direction. I didn't know who really to go to because all the people I went to prior to being incarcerated, it eventually led me to incarceration, so I didn't want to go back that route, and I ended up going to uh, workforce, and then they was like, yeah, we know this program. We don't know much about it, but I hear they, uh, they can help you get a job, and when they said help you get a job, in my mind, I translated that as they're going to give me a job, <laughs> and that wasn't the case, so... Um, so what did we do? When you showed up, what happened? I went over there and uh, I met with Sherry, which was at the time the program director, and eventually I met with you. And um, we, we, we sat down, we established a plan and uh, uh, wrote down some uh, reachable goals for me. And uh, I followed it and I uh, stayed the course. And through that I was, you know, uh, gaining success a little, a little at a time, a little at a time, and then, you know, with my background, of course, I had to take that into consideration, uh, but it was a situation where the employer wouldn't necessarily want to work with me if I had to came straight to them, but they, the program was tried and true, so they trusted the program, and the program trusted me, so it was just all one big happy family. <laughs> one of the things we were able to do is when, when Endel came in, and, and I began to see this was it was painfully obvious that this, this was somebody who was pretty special. He had this spark in his eye. He was definitely determined to do something different. And as I said, that paradigm shift happened actually before you came out. When you came to me, I could see you were already beginning to think in a different way about, I gotta do something different. You just shared right. about that a little bit now. Um, but like you said, when you came, you thought you were gonna get a job. So what did you get? You didn't get a job right away. No, I got some people that uh, appreciated me, uh, respected me. Uh, and was willing to listen, more importantly, what I had, you know, I had never uh, experienced somebody to just listen to me and, and whatever I had, they did, I wasn't judged, uh, they didn't push, although it's Racine Vocational Ministry, they didn't push, the, the, in my mind, you know, I'm thinking Bible, you know, this big old church on the corner that I've never been in, and it's full of people that don't look like me, and they finna push God down my throat, but that wasn't the case. <laughs> Um, and to this day, it hasn't been. I don't think we just talked the other day, or well, yesterday, and I don't think there's ever been a conversation where Jim and I had where it was, you know, you need to go to church, you need to pray more, you need to do this. It's never been like that. So, 
One of the things that we try to do at Racine Vocational Ministry is make sure that the people who are coming to us, I say to my staff a lot of times, this is a great business to be in. It's a little bit like Christmas. It really is. Everybody that comes down our stairs is a gift. God has sent us another person to learn about, to experience, and to uh, begin to see what God has done in somebody else. The strangest of that, when I explain this to people a lot of times, I see that deer in the headlights look, aren't you talking about convicted murderers, drug dealers? Um, yes. But we believe, and you've heard me preach on this before, that God has knit us together in the womb. He didn't knit Endel to be one of Racine's more notorious dope dealers. That isn't what he wired him to be. That's what he became. And yet, even though that's how he behaved, it wasn't who he was. Right. And he began to see the difference between what I do is not who I am. Talking about vocation, that's often where guys get it messed up. They think what they do is who they are. And they miss the fact that God has wired something well beyond their occupation that God has knit them together to build his kingdom here on earth with unique skills to make that happen. And I'm going to make a little transition here because, Endel, that was one of the conversations we began to have. So shortly after, you did some training, you got a couple of jobs, you got some more training, uh, eventually you went back to college. Just a couple of months ago, you finished your bachelor's degree, you're now considering a master's degree in, in mental health. Um, and by the way, this is somebody who was assessed in school as being extremely mentally deficient. They had, you got to hold, talk a little bit, you got to hold your records, school records, what, what, five years ago, six years ago, or is right. it a little more than that? Yeah. Right, and I had, uh, what well, actually was my adoption records, and um, I sent off to Madison to, to get them, and I get them, and, and I'm reading them, and some of the stuff I remembered, but some of the stuff was like, ah, this can't be true, you know, why they, why they saying this about me? Why they saying that about me? And I didn't believe it, right? So, Again, my thinking, all this can't be true. So I sent out for a second copy of the same paperwork. <laughs> and all it did was confirm that it was true. And uh, they had diagnosed me with, uh, uh, they said I was borderline mentally retarded. They said um, I, 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 I didn't fit, I wasn't fit to be in a household that they recommended me go to a mental institution. Um, because of my behavior issue, my anger issues, and I'm reading and I'm like, wow, how can somebody say that about me that, you know, and at that time, I think I was like eight years old or what have you, mm -hmm. but I had been to every psychiatrist from Racine, Kenosha, Milwaukee, and the surrounding area, and I'm remembering these visits and I'm reading the psychiatrist's report, and I'm like, wow, that's what they really thought of me. And I didn't understand the fact that they were judging me based off of the surface level, my actions, but they wasn't looking at the root cause of my actions because I come from a dysfunctional home. So what I mean by that was um, me coming out the house and somebody saying, hey, what's up, man? I take that as a, as a challenge. What's up? What you mean, what's up? Then I go to punching them upside the head. So that was my norm. And here it is, somebody telling me that that's wrong. Well, my mama said it was right. My daddy's mm -hmm. not here, he's in prison. So, but you know, through it all, all these labels that I had uh, placed on me, they said I was dyslexia. They said, I, whatever you can think of, they said it about me. And 
because I didn't know who I was at the time, I became and I was becoming just that through my actions. And after reading it, I was like, wow, man, that's, that's not me. I don't, I don't know who that is. And um, where I am today, uh, if you look at the paperwork, they didn't, no one gave me a chance. I mean, it's simple mm -hmm. as that. It was remarkable having those first couple of meetings with you because I could see that you were starting to put things together already. You obviously had some, some training in prison. They do right. CGIP, yeah. cognitive intervention training, and all these kinds of things. But you began to become, and I was seeing this already, you were beginning to become more who God created you to be just by this simple shift of realizing, I need to behave differently. Right. I maybe need to have a different circle of people in my life, mm -hmm. my life to be who I really am. Right. I, I think it's stunning that you said that, that you read this and you went, this isn't me. Right. But yet it, it was your behavior, right. yep. but it wasn't what was going on in your head most of the time. Um, uh, without going into deep detail, uh, Andal has shared with me over and over the, the unbelievable abuse that he uh, endured as a child. I mean, unbelievable levels. And in a foster home where they didn't feed you, right. didn't clean your clothes, <laughs> you were pretty much left on your own, didn't eat with the family, right. just put in the back room and, and, and given food. You just didn't have the time, the opportunity to be in a, an environment, as we say in our engaged classes, where people were half glad to see you right. and glad to be with right. you. That was not your world. No, it, it, no, I didn't know that. I mean, that, that's a TV show. That's the, <laughs> the Cosby's or something like that, you know. Uh, mm -hmm. That, that what just wasn't, uh, I was in a house, you know, foster parents or what have you. And the ironic thing about this was the foster home was just a few blocks away from my biological mm. family. And everything that I was told in the foster home was a lie. Mm. You know, and the paperwork clearly states it. And some of the stuff I still remember, but um, in, in the treatment that I had to endure, you know, I wasn't good enough for nothing. Um, I, I wasn't going to amount to nothing. So it went from my biological family being mistreated and neglected to the foster home, mm -hmm. the, same, the same treatment. So I'm, I'm like, I'm really messed up in the head at this mm -hmm. point because what became my norm, I see now, it's very dysfunctional. Mm -hmm. That's not the way you, you treat a kid. That's not the way you treat anybody, mm -hmm. you know, f for that matter. And um, even like with, with, with eating dinner, I never grew up and ate dinner at a table with everybody. Mm -hmm. Never. I never, um, we, we went to secondhand stores. And not, that's nothing wrong with that, but there's something wrong with it if you take the child or you go get the child's secondhand clothes, but you yourself as a parent, you got top of the line stuff. Mm. You, it, mm -hmm. was, it, was, it was that type of thing. I never uh, had assistance with homework. You know, no one never sat me down and say, uh, this is th this word and this is this math problem. I never had that growing mm -hmm. up. So it was either I leave this environment and go to where a group of guys were that's experienced the same thing. And that was the streets. I was raised literally by the streets. Wow. And so, yeah, I wish we had all day to do this because it's a fascinating story step by step. But so you're making this shift mm -hmm. and you're beginning to uh, sense your place in your home, your own home, based on what you didn't see as a kid. Mm -hmm. And so part of what I want to talk, ask you a little, talk about, a little bit about is your vocation as a father. 
Okay. Now, you didn't have a role model. Your father was in prison for years. Over 40 years. Over 40 years. Um, your stepfather, your foster father, didn't. We never had a relationship. Never had a relationship. So how did you begin to make the leap as a call to being a father? And you can talk a little bit about even when you came out, what was your relationship with your daughter when you were released? Uh, at the time when I came home, I had two daughters. And through the course of my five-year sentence, I had a total of five pictures, right? And prior to going to prison, you know, I was out on the streets gangbanging, selling drugs, the whole nine. And um, I was a material father, right? So by me not having the name, brand, this and that growing up as a kid, I figured, well, hey, if I provide that with my kids, then to my kids, then I got to step up on, you know, my mother and father because I didn't get it. So I thought, uh, you know, getting the new Jordans or that Air Maxes or, you know, the Oskospagash and all this type of stuff was, was the end thing for the kids, right? But I never spent no time with my children. So now I'm in prison, I'm thinking about this, all the opportunities that I had to be a father, uh, which I really didn't know how to be. It's a learning curve for those of us that's parents. Every day is something different. But when I came home, I remember walking through the house and I walked right past my daughter. And uh, she said to me, uh, it's a shame you don't even know who your daughter is. And I looked, I'm like, oh, hey. Now, I remind you, my daughter looks just like me. I mean, split an image. <laughs> and I'm like, wow, I was gone that long that I didn't even know who my daughter was. And so moving fast forward, it, um, just being a father and a parent is, as we all know, that it, every day is something different with the child, right? So. I had to um, I had to learn my children as they had to learn me, and I had to uh, show them because one of the questions my daughters asked um, would ask me is, uh, "How long are you gonna be around? Hmm. Are you going back to jail?" Uh, so they were really reluctant on um, establishing a relationship with me in hmm. the beginning. So right. I had to. I had to show my daughters at the time um, that, you know, daddy's not going nowhere. I'm here to stay. And later on, it was a situation. Whew. It's rough. Um, later on, it was a situation where um, my daughter's, I got a 15-year-old now, um, uh, where, you know, oftentimes you hear um, where, you know, deadbeat dads is the slogan, right? Mm -hmm. um, but you never hear the other side. It's not just fathers that walk away from their responsibilities as parents and things of that nature. There's women that do it too. But us guys don't talk about that. So I was in that type of situation where, you know, I wanted to see my daughter and, and it was times where her mom would be like, um, yeah, you can come see her. And I'll go there to get her and uh, I changed my mind, you can't see her. I'm like, what? Is, and then I look up, see my daughter in the window crying. So I'm like, man, what? What can I do? And and where I'm, where I come from, it's like you don't go, you don't go to the courthouse and file paperwork and do this. You just don't do that. That's forbidden in the black community. You stay away from that. You work it out how you work it out. But again, you know that I had that mind shift, and I wanted to be a father, not just one, not just two, but all my children, right? And I had a decision to make. Am I going to sit back and let allow her mother to dictate 
my parenting and my relationship with her or am I going to do what's forbidden in our community? And at that point, I had it. I had to make a decision like that. And I went, I established paperwork. I mean, I filled out the paperwork. I did all the things that I needed to do to just to get visitation rights for my daughter, right? But through the course of this, I needed somebody to talk to. Because again, I didn't want to go back the route that I went to talk to the same people I used to talk to. So where did I go? I went to the program. I talked to Jim. I talked to Sherry over and over. He probably got tired of seeing me. I would call him <laughs> on moment's notice. Um, and from that, uh, to make a long story short, I end up, um, I started off, I was my own attorney. Don't ask me how I did it, but I did it, right? And I remember coming in court, I would have like, you know, my little briefcase, like I was uh, Johnny Cochran or somebody. I didn't know what I was doing, <laughs> but I figured it out. And, you know, a, a lot of times the briefcase was just full of blank paper, <laughs> but it looked good, right? And um, I presented the case and, and I eventually won custody, full custody of my daughter. And um, she's been with me now since she was five, she's 15 now. And so um, I just wanted to do something different and, and, and show not only myself and, and me and my daughter, now we have this talk, these talks about, our, we all call it father and daughter time, right? Where she has an opportunity to say anything she wants to me, whatever she always thought of me, and we get into it too. And in this <laughs> talk, she can do anything and say anything other than cuss. And uh, so she figures out different words to. Yeah. <laughs> She's real clever that way. But um, it's it, it's been a journey, and uh, fatherhood, being a parent, is something special. And it's what I have an opportunity to give to my children, what wasn't given to me, you know. And I couldn't have even envision waking up with my dad and, and, and you know playing catch. I never caught a ball from my father. I never watched a movie with my father. I never, um, my father never taught me how to use a drill. He never taught me how to use a hammer. Um, so it's just the, the little things that, that I wasn't mm -hmm. able to experience as a kid that I give to my daughters. And that's gone beyond that. So, so again, staying with the, the idea of vocation and call, one of the things that you said to me early on is that you really wanted to share with the guys behind you Absolutely. so they don't walk in the same walk that you did. You learned a lot mm -hmm. uh, uh, being away, right. and now you began to learn a lot being home. Mm -hmm. I, Endo talks about having empty papers in his briefcase. I never met anybody who documented what was going on in his life more significantly than him. Notebook after notebook of how the days went, specific incidents, hundreds of voice text messages yeah. that allowed you to get custody of your daughter, who's now an honor roll student, yeah. um, thinking about college, mm -hmm. seeing her dad graduate from college last May. This is nothing that you grew up with, but it's been part of how you're wired. And it's, what stuns me is that your early review talked about your profound mental illness. It wasn't, I've seen this paperwork profound mental illness. This was following him from kindergarten to first grade, to second grade, to third grade, and now you're a college graduate beginning to pursue your master's degree. You have a daughter that you've gotten custody of. You paid off tens of thousands of dollars of child support. Uh, you, you, your, your daughter's on honor roll, um, and you are beginning now, and I shouldn't say beginning now, even from the beginning, you said, I also want to help people coming behind me. Tell, you where that, tell me where that came from. It's just a drive, man. Um, like like we talked about, it's it's 
like people see what we do and you, you know it's not like I, I I wake up and I anticipate doing this mm -hmm. it's just part of who I am you know like mm -hmm. I don't even when I'm on a job you know I see a person hey how how, how you doing or whatever mm -hmm. I just want to make sure that that I, I have some type of impact, mm -hmm. not only in those, uh, like my children's lives, but those around me as well. Cause mm -hmm. you know, like a good morning, how you doing? That can go a long way, mm -hmm. you know? And, and where I come from, there was no good mornings. Mm -hmm. you, you get up and you, you go about your day and we all in the house together. Mm -hmm. You know, I walk past you a hundred times in a day and won't say nothing to you. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So I think it's very important that not only myself, you as well, and all of us reach back to, to, to pull somebody forward, mm -hmm. you know, and that can see that there is a way out. Mm -hmm. Just because, you know, your father wasn't there, you were abused as a kid, or you've been neglected, um, whatever the case is, there's always a choice in the matter. Mm -hmm. We have a choice, and as a kid, I didn't, I didn't see, because my life was controlled. Mm -hmm. But as I got older, I continue to use that as a crutch to do devious things. Mm -hmm. And now as a man, I realize that whatever I do from this point forward is a conscious decision. If I choose to reach back and help somebody, mm -hmm. I'm driven by God, I already know that. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? That's, that's just, to sum it all up, mm -hmm. you know, um, I, don't, I, don't, I don't get a payday for this. Mm -hmm. I don't, um, I'm not looking at my bank statement and say, yeah, if I go, speak to this group, I'm gonna make this amount of money, or it's, mm -hmm. it's not, I don't even care about that, mm -hmm. you know, because a lot of my, my earnings, now I give away, mm -hmm. you know, to guy, I got some laundry detergent in the trunk right now, you know, for, for a guy that, uh, that's at Halo, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And I've been riding around with it for two weeks. He said he was gonna come get it, so I figure I'll ride around with it till I see him and I give it to him, <laughs> you know what I mean? So, mm -hmm. the, my driving force is God. You know, and I'm just, I'm just a soldier. Wow. wow. This is somebody I really love. We've had uh, a lot of years to get to know each other. And, oh, absolutely. And now I'm seeing uh, Endel is teaching a course called uh, Choices Change Lives that he designed and the Racine Correctional Institute and now in the Youthful Offender Facility where he spent some time as a, as a young man. Mm -hmm. And so I'm just gonna wrap up here by saying uh, uh, how wonderful that the gospel works on every aspect of us, mind, body, and will, and enables us to deeply appreciate the work of believers and even non-believers in ways uh, that we can aspire to, to bring about the kingdom around us uh, and to bring about God's kingdom as we hear. Endel, started by serving, looking in, uh, inside and beginning to serve uh, himself in a way that he hadn't served himself and was seeing himself in a different way and doing things that strengthened him, but also then carrying that out to how he began to create the family he never had right. and then expanding that further to begin to reach out to other people who also don't have the family that they had. Um, and so basically I just want to wrap up by saying that, that we're seeing vocational ministry and Kenosha vocational ministry. What we're trying to do is create a path back to reconciliation, a path back to wholeness so that people can live their lives as God called them. We have this mythology in our mind about what a person coming back from prison should look like, sound like, 
talk like and act like. A lot of fear wrapped up in that, a lot of uh, confusion wrapped up in what, a lot of mythology wrapped up about that. And I can tell you that the people coming back, they're looking for, many of them are looking for a friend. They're looking for an opportunity to be seen <laughs> and be, be uh, an opportunity to have somebody be glad to be with them. And so uh, this is part of what we do at RVM. Now, Endel's doing this in his own life. Um, I ask you to continue to, to hold him up in your prayers as he, uh, as he begins to pursue his master's degree in mental health. And uh, just thank you for this opportunity to share with you this morning. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.